Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Here at FuturePod, we are always thinking of ways to capture new perspectives and provide mind-stimulating content for our listeners. So, we are introducing an additional format to complement our traditional mix of interviews, which we're calling the FuturePod Conversations. While I am a FuturePod host, I was also a guest. I was in Podcast 2, called Deep Inquiry, and so I can claim guest rights, and I can have my own conversation. And so I'm doing just that. And I'm inviting Peter Bishop, who was in podcast number nine, A Life of Teaching the Future, back to FuturePod. Welcome back, Peter. It's great to be here, Peter. Thank you very much. I posed Peter this question. What are some of the possible scenarios of the USA post the election period? Whoever wins, that sees change that begins the journey to bring America together rather than drive it further apart. Now, that question and the questioner needs a bit of explaining, as does my choice of guest. While I'm an Australian and have no special knowledge of the situation in the US, I'm a very interested observer. I have family there and also many friends and colleagues, but also I reflect that my adult intellectual journey has featured heavily an interest in what I call the idea of America. I have formally studied its history, its literature, and informally its politics and culture. As a futurist, I sense the emerging issues that foreshadowed the Trump win in 2016. And for the past four years, I have watched partisanship seemingly shrink the middle ground. And with the upcoming US election, many previously sober commentators are now speaking openly of the post-election period, whoever wins, being a mix of a political crisis, a constitutional crisis, and a civil crisis, with a scenario of possible widespread civil conflict, what some are calling the Second Civil War. I was aware that I was finding it hard to imagine other scenarios that could eventuate, that could move America away from division and conflict. And I educated my students that whenever you cannot imagine alternatives to what seems fated, you need to get outside your thoughts and get into the thoughts of others. I am not seeking to know who wins the election, nor am I wishing to go further into how things get worse if things don't change post the election. And so I chose Peter Bishop to help me. Peter is a friend, but also a peerless educator, and also someone who taught me that we do not really study the future, instead we study change. And it's the processes of change that create alternative futures. And so it will be processes of change that could move the USA from the brink. And I need to know what some of those could be. I have to tell your listeners that you, of course, we corresponded by email on this and you laid out that charge, that question, uh, how could this go away or, or change? And the end of your email is, so I called you. <laughs> and I want to tell you, that <laughs> I don't know why you called me, but I'm very glad that you did. And I look forward to having a conversation with you where you can give us an outside perspective, an Australian's perspective and a global perspective, uh, given our inside perspective from uh, in the United States. So you're right about change. Our course in uh, social change includes 10 or 12 different 
theories of change, we call them, patterns of change. The Western view tends to be linear, exponential, extrapolative, whether you call it progress or development, whether you call it increasing technology or increasing economy or even increasing human rights and civil rights, uh, there is this arrow of time. Uh, the fifth such change, however, it counteracts that and, can, and contradicts that. And there is a cyclic theory of change, which has equally, if not more, historical roots. Mm. Uh, in the ancient world, that was basically that, in Greece and Rome, around the Mediterranean. We know the Hindu uh, cosmology has recurrence as its effective change. And of course, we know lots of historians and intellectuals of the past who basically made the point that what goes up must come down and that nothing lasts forever, which is seems to be a tautology. So you pose the question, uh, basically, if one were a cyclic theorist, what would be the mechanisms that drives this cycle, which has driven us into, how can I characterize it, a condition of polarization, a condition of uniform distrust, if not anger and grievance, a uh, position uh, of, like you say, you said shrunk the common ground. I might almost even say no common ground. It is. It was almost impossible to enter into any conversation in the United States these days without it becoming politicized, if not weaponized, mm. to get at the other party. So that's the current condition. And, and as you point out, it's fairly easy to extrapolate it to become even worse. So we'll just leave that lie there on the floor. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you're right. The more challenge is where is the turning point? Hmm. What are the mechanisms that create a cycle out of this? We're bad times. There's a phrase that says nothing succeeds like failure. And the opposite of that, unfortunately, is nothing fails like success. And that's basically a cyclic theorist view of life. So if this is a failure, if this is a, a broken system, if this is a system that's gone awry, what, if anything, are the balancing mechanisms that could bring it about? Let me do a little bit of history first, and then let's do the conversation. I take my text largely from a book that has been extremely important to me about the narrative of the role of government and society and the role of economy and government for the last 150 years. After the Civil War in the United States in the 1860s, the country experienced its rapid acceleration. What had happened in the British Islands in the late 18th and early 19th century and other places of Europe in the 19th century, the United States did from 1865 to about 1900. And it resulted in what was called the, the, the Gilded Age. Yep. Today, we would call them oligarchs, very, very wealthy families and people who basically controlled the society through monopolies and uh, through uh, banks and, and everything else. That cycle began to reverse in the 1900s uh, and reverse with the progressive era in the early part of the century, obviously with the New Deal and with the Great Society Movement from Lyndon Johnson, where we got Medicare and civil rights legislation, voting rights legislation, war on poverty programs, things like that. Then that cycle began to reverse with the appearance of uh, Margaret Thatcher in the, in the United Kingdom and Ronald Reagan in the United States, who basically 
laid down the predicate, which unfortunately, almost everyone in particularly Anglo societies have accepted since that time. And that is that the government is not the solution to society's problems. The government is the problem and the marketplace is the solution. And that has that has been uh, true in American politics. And I would think in most politics, maybe even Australian politics for the last 40 years, almost exactly 40 years. The problem is that the Republicans in the United States have pushed that more and more. Reagan was a rather mild market theorist. Uh, he probably wouldn't even have got elected today because he was not extreme enough. One piece has Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the early 1990s. And he gave a talk when he was still a college professor that said politics is not about governance, it's about winning. And now we see the ultimate that with Dick Cheney as a vice president, the 1% solution guy who really was more about accumulating and using power than it was about making anything better. And now we have Donald Trump and the Republicans, who I believe, frankly, are an internal threat to the democracy. So how does one think about the reversal of that cycle that begins in the 1980s? Well, there is a theory uh, that, well, there's two theories. One is that change happens at the bottom of a cycle. And that usually turns out not to be true. When people are most oppressed, it is not when they rise up and create change. It is when they have an expectation of better times and when those expectations do not become fulfilled, even not that they are reversed, but that they flatten off. So we've had expectations of increasing better societies in the 1890s, and it didn't occur, in the 1920s, and it didn't occur, and we had the luxury of having social progress in the 1960s. But again, that was change promised through Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, and it wasn't realized until people took to the streets and tried to make it a legislative reality. So what is the upside that people are going to expect that then will be thwarted and create the real change? Well, it's hard to see a trigger for the upside. I frankly don't believe that even a Biden win, that will certainly reverse the superficial politics of the federal administration undoing a lot of the damage that's been done, but certainly not bringing it back to any kind of a healthy state. So what may happen is that that small progress will be taken to be very strong. Uh, I would call it almost, you know, in technology, the hype cycle, uh, almost, oh, now we're on the road to progress. And that the forces in society that have created this system will thwart that, will prevent that. And that's when real change occurs. Uh, we just had an event on Friday, the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg as our Supreme Court Justice, a towering figure in United States history, and obviously a woman and, and for women's rights. And democratic contributions on Saturday were $100 million. Hmm. That's the reaction. 
that when we think that she can last until a Biden president appoints her successor and she doesn't through no fault of her own, poor dear, people react. So if there is some little progress in a Democratic administration, let's say he wins, uh, people will expect a lot. They will probably expect too much because I don't see Biden as a person who is prepared to attack the systemic structures of this society. We now use the term and understand the term of systemic racism, which is not the same as prejudice and discrimination. It is the fact that the system is rigged. We now understand the fact that the economy is capitalism, not socialism. What are the roots of those terms? Capital versus social. Well, how many people in this country have capital? More than half. And how many people have most of the capital? Less than 10%. 1%. There will be a reaction to that when Biden cannot deliver without having the politics, literally, of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to attack the roots of the problem. He's going to trim the tree. But when people get disappointed in the fact that we have not really adjusted the inequality and the grievances. So what happened in the last 40 years that created those grievances? Well, what's interesting is that the grievances were not created by government, though they are the target. They're created by business. It's about capital. The government did not require the businesses to seek cheap labor offshore in China and Mexico and elsewhere. They did not require the businesses to invent and deploy automation technology, which hollowed out most of the jobs that were the middle-class jobs of the 50s and 60s. What they did do, however, was encouraged it in Republican administrations and allowed it and did not fight against it and did not prevent that in Democratic administrations. So I hold them both responsible. It's, it's a time where elites for the last 40 years have used a political and an economic theory that is convenient for them, but does not serve the general public. And when the general public awakens to that fact, where capitalism is not the sacred good that it is proposed to be, and where structural reform is going to be required, that's when we will begin to turn. But the people who are most grieved, who are the, are, are the Republicans, who are those who are most angry and most outraged, they have to realize that first. They have to see that, that it is not the government's problem. And we need to write the balance. Not that government is the solution to everything, but it ought not to be the villain of everything either. Mm. So that's my setup, Peter. So let's, uh, let's, let's converse about that. Take that apart. It's interesting that you raised the Gilded Age and that, and the process that began the progressive movement, because of course another small part of that, which I'm sure you're aware of, of course, were the actual were the actual anarchist riots that happened, particularly in New York City, but other, but really around America at a time when the Gilded Age had delivered this supposed wonder. There was a lot of people fomenting social change through violent means that were on the street. And as I read it and I was taught it, they scared the living daylights out of the powers that be, particularly, of course, what had, what was going down in parts of Europe. There was an impetus from 
from society's demand for change that possibly galvanized a slow political response. Well, in fact, that same thing, that same dynamic occurred in the 1930s, Mm. where it wasn't anarchism. It was, on the one hand, communism, but on the other hand, fascism, which scared the administration to creating change, to fixing a system which was clearly unequal and not doing anything for people, and to try and it's in a sense to try and protect the system, but the system had been so out of whack and so much in favor of an elite that they realized that they had to back off some in an enlightened self-interest hmm. and give some of that back to people. And if you watch, if you look at the inequality curve and inequality of income, the height is the Gilded Age, the 1920s, almost as much. It plummets in the 30s and starts back up again in the 80s. It was that different. It was that period. And then, of course, the race riots, riots to some extent, the protests of the 1960s. Not only was, I think, Lyndon Johnson was inclined to put in social legislation, but it certainly got a lot more support because it looked like the country was on a tinderbox. So the problem is that many, many would claim that things have to get worse before they get better. The protests around race relations so far have been largely peaceful, less than 10% violence, although other side will claim a lot more. There have been almost no economic protests. Unions are basically almost defunct. There are no strikes. There are no riots of, of, of economic proportions. So there has to be, unfortunately, perhaps a, an increase in the threat to the existing system before the system begins to respond and change to reduce that threat. And that threat, the only way to reduce, well, there's two ways of reducing that threat. One is by oppression, and secondly, by accommodation. I certainly hope in this case, as it was before, that it's accommodation. We also just had the um, the BuzzFeed launch of the global information about the excesses of the global financial system in managing the proceeds of money from from you know laundering all kinds of criminal money and as an amazing release of you talked about the hype train with Biden of course well there was a hype train of course when Obama was elected that he was elected as the GFC was hitting home and nothing at that time was done about the financial system then. And yet Obama kind of rode that process and was never held to account while people wanted some action to be taken against the financial people that had contributed to the GFC. Almost none was taken. Is that another, if you like, a small fire now with what's happened again? Here we are. Now, 15 years later, and the global information about how the finance system is operating above the law with the sanction of almost every government, is that going to cause enough public disquiet, disgust and anger to demand fundamental change? Uh, Unfortunately, I think that's all very abstract and very uh, distant macro for most people to use as a a grievance. I mean, we, we had the revelations of the Panama Papers what, seven or eight years ago? Yep. 
And some enormous percentage of wealthy people are not paying any taxes on that wealth because they can park their money in the Cayman Islands or or what else. And then there are companies in Central America and in the Caribbean who are serving that market by taking hundreds of millions, sometimes billions of dollars and putting it somewhere where governments can't get a hold of it. That's been going on almost since capitalism has been created. So I don't think anybody's surprised that the money laundering and have been going on uh, all of this time. I, I, I can't be, I, I'm not exercised about that because that's the system. <laughs> that's the way bank. I had, a, I had a case once in Houston, I was visiting a investment firm and I don't know what, what we were talking about given a talk at their professional meeting or something like that. And this had been at a time when a banker had embezzled $10 million from some source of money. And these guys were sitting around a table saying, how could anybody do that? I mean, we've got a fiduciary responsibility. How could that happen? And I looked at them and I said, $10 million? <laughs> they, they got this shocked look on their face, like all of a sudden they realized that the values that they were trying to propose, I presume, were uh, not universally shared. And when you put that against $10 million, obviously those values crashed. Uh, yeah, I I don't. Th I mean, I've always thought that the concept, and this is no indictment of our good friends in the school of management or business, but this, but the course in business ethics always seem to be slightly an oxymoron. That uh, the purpose is to make money, in in however you can, I believe, get away with. Uh, it's not about following one's conscience. It's about it's about the bottom line at the end of the day. And I think the same is true in politics. It is not following one's conscience. It's not following one's principles. It's maintaining your constituency to give you the money to remain in office and to get elected. So we have two systems that are both run. They were The self-interest was supposed to create some kind of universal common good. But now the self-interest in both of those systems have been hijacked by the people who are the winners of those systems to tilt the system in their favor. Again, as a cyclic notion, there was a time, certainly in America, certainly in Europe, and I think in Australia, of how families of privilege often saw public service as a thing they should do. And for long periods of time, particularly in America, the great families of the people who gave public service. The Bush family, of course, was one of those. It was, again, a, possibly a learned behaviour from the Gilded Age that if you have privilege, you give service. And part of that, of course, was not profiting necessarily based on the contacts you made. But that is not the case now. Well, you can make an argument that, that to some extent the values have changed. The turning point there, again, was around 1980. Uh, when Milton Friedman, noted economics professor at the University of Chicago, uh, and others at that in that economics department, put out the premise that the only legal interest that a corporation can have is to serve its shareholders. It, the only interest that it can serve is that. If it wastes money on the community, or wastes money on its employees, or wastes money on the environment, then somehow they were doing something not only untoward, but illegal. I've heard reports there is no such law 
<laughs> that, uh, but we created maybe in contradistinction to that, we created in the U.S. something called a B corporation, B standing for benefits. And that's a corporation which is legally allowed and indeed required to distribute some of its profits for social good, some kind of required corporate social responsibility. And it, it, it came for a while, and there are still companies that tout that classification. But if you have to have a B Corp, what's the other corp? <laughs> <laughs> what's the non-B Corp? The only thing it needs to do is make money for its shareholders and usually its executives. But this could come back to this whole movement away from commonality, away from community, away from a fellow feeling to what I would call hyper-individualism, hyper-competitiveness. It is all about what you get. And if you get more than the next guy, you win. And if less, you lose. And that is what the game is about. It's not about taking care of each other. Now, the, your question is, how could that change? That could change if there is a sense that things are progressing which is called the, the revolution of rising expectations. If things are progressing, but the reality is not does not go along with the progress that's expected, and that's when real revolutions take place. Another of your forces for social change, of course, are environmental. And uh, in America, you're going through your summer of bushfires, wildfires, and, of course, Australia came off its summer of the greatest ever bushfires that we've ever seen. Can you just explain the notion of how could environmentally, almost environmental overwhelm, possibly change people's expectation of what they require from all leaders? Yeah, I think this is a purely economic analysis. Uh, when it gets too expensive to deny, then the shift will take place. That when the cost of insurance when the cost of building uh, walls around Miami and Manhattan, when a good part of the acreage, forest acreage in California, is burned up, when, as one person put it, when it begins to affect the rich, unfortunately, I have a relatively pessimistic view of who runs society. That's another theory of change, that it's really an elite. When they begin to pay, that's what I think it's going to change. And it's going to. I, don't, I can't imagine the cost of climate change going down anytime soon and maybe even over 100 years. I mean, we all know that carbon dioxide hangs in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. It has an almost no half-life. And in that sense, every year it is warming. It doesn't just warm the first year. Every molecule of carbon dioxide put into the atmosphere is still warming that atmosphere by the year 2100 and 2200 and 2300. So the costs of this are going to be astronomical. I mean, the cost of weather-related insurance is already much higher than it used to be. That hasn't yet really pushed inroads into those, uh, into those pocketbooks. But when it does, I think it's going to do, do that. I do believe we're in a society where the oligarchs and the 1% or the 10% in both parties are in charge and they have yet to actually move to become that. So it, it's going to be a cost. cost. And, and how much suffering before the costs get to those folks who are going to have to pay for it? Lots. 
Another open question is whether or not we talk about the elites and the oligarchs from the previous golden age or gilded age to this gilded age, the role played by art and critics, because, of course, at a time were people like F. Scott Fitzgerald writing about the elites and those type of writers and dramatists and playwrights, Arthur Miller and so forth, were they ever influential often as artists? They, in fact... They, in fact, were consumed by the elites. They were patronized by them, of course. But yes, I think uh, not so much The Great Gatsby, but I think The Jungle from Sinclair Lewis is said to have had a profound effect on thinking. I think uh, in in the 1960s, it was a book called The Other America by a guy named Michael Harrington. I remember reading that as a college student. A definite depiction of poverty in the United States, which was graphically illustrated there. Uh, so uh, there is, I, I think you have to have the force. I think that I don't think the, the literature creates that, but it gives a program, it gives an articulation, it gives language to for the movement to use when it, uh, when it finally comes about. The language of the current world was created not by literary types like you're talking about, but was created by think tanks, conservative think tanks in the United States after the Goldwater defeat in 1964. And they said, we have to get this. We have to get a message that will resonate. And Reagan was the first one to be the beneficiary of that. And they were very well funded. And they created a narrative of the U.S., where again, the market was the solution, let the market run, and it will take care of automation. It will balance the workforce. It will take care of outsourcing and globalization. The market will balance. Well, it didn't. And for 40 years, the government, Democrats and Republicans, were either promoting it or in complicit in allowing it. And neither one took a strong stand and said that the economy is overbalanced, it is more is only about capital now, not about people, and they're good and sharing the benefits of this. That wasn't a literary. I mean, you could I guess you could point to Ayn Rand maybe as the literary <laughs> godmother of the of this movement. But I mean, and again, I mean, what I hear is that if people like Dick Cheney were big fans of Ayn Rand and uh, Newt Gingrich because they saw the battle for what it was, and the Democrats have yet to engage in the battle. Obama himself was a brilliant guy, immense morals, a, a towering orator and, and, and his stature, but he was not a fighter. He was not, he did not bring the fight. Somebody once said earlier this week, if somebody declares war on you and you don't declare war back, you lose. And I think that's what's been going on for the last 40 years. The Democrats have yet to declare war back, and for all the right reasons, because they really do do want to have the conversation. They do want to have the dialogue. I believe, of course, I'm leaning in that direction, and maybe I'm giving them more credit than they're due, but I do believe that they want, and, and Obama was exactly that, trying to get people to talk. And, you know, leader of the Senate said at his very first press conference, my job is to make him a one-term president. And that was the end of the. And he didn't realize that until late in his administration that there was no hope of dialogue, no hope of compromise. 
So if there is going to be a reversal, if there's going to be a cycle, unfortunately, I would have to say that it is going to require worse in the short run, more than better in the short run. So I'm going to push you now to sketch out a scenario. Let's imagine it's got worse. Don't worry how long it's taken, whether it's taken 12 months or another couple of presidential rounds. Talk me through a kind of scenario of how it starts to turn around, what does it look like and that kind of thing. It begins with a top down and a bottom up. I think if, if and, and let's assume a Biden administration, he can't say this during the campaign, but after the campaign, if he admits to the complicity that his party had in this 40-year decline or 40-year slide into hyper-extreme capitalism and says, it's time we change that. We can't change that in four years, probably can't change that in eight years. We, the democratic elite, the liberal elite, are almost as responsible for this as we believe the Republican elite was. That's one thing that could begin to turn it around and give the, the Democrats the opportunity to feel a little bit of guilt about this too. I mean, they're on their high horse. They're defending the Constitution. We're for dialogue. We're for compromise. We're for good governance. Yes, and then why were you not defending people when they were losing their jobs because of automation and outsourcing? Where were you? So there, there's, there's plenty of guilt to go all around. The other is the flip of what we would consider to be Trump's base, the middle to lower class working class, mostly white, who finally realize that they have been conned by the elite. They have been conned into believing, number one, that the government was the source of the problem. The government was complicit in the problem, but the source of the problem was just business as usual, making money and reducing labor costs by globalization and by technology and automation. There we go. I don't know if that, I think they would have to kind of flip. And that's a very hard thing, as we all know, social psychologically, people would have to abandon their firmly held beliefs to flip into something else. I don't think barring, well, catastrophic civil distress, that there is any way of forcing that to happen. I think that has to come in some kind of open-eyed realization that this system is not working. And the people who are promoting that system are those exact Trump voters who, who believe in him and believe in the fact that he is fighting for their purposes. If they stop believing that and realize that he's part of the elite, he wants to destroy the government, no doubt about that. And he's doing a good job of that. And they don't like the government. So they're real happy about that part, but that their lives are not getting any better. And in some ways worse. They're dying from coronavirus, most of all. And so whoever can flip that script, the way Friedman and Thatcher and Earl Joseph, who was Thatcher's kind of guru, and Reagan, and flip it back, at least to balance, that the government is not the solution to everything, but it's not the problem of everything either. And the economy and the market is an excellent mechanism as long as it is channeled and, and guarded to become better for most people, not just for an elite, which it was from 1930 to 1980. So the genius was to get half the proletariat to support the elites. Oh, exactly. It always is. The leaders of the American Revolution were elites. They were business people and landowners and mostly, mostly slaveholders. And the French Revolution, same way. 
and the Russian Revolution. Same. I mean, Lenin was an educated, and there we go back to Machiavelli. Machiavelli said, don't worry about, he was given this advice to the prince, don't worry about the people. Just don't screw, screw them over and they'll be okay. It's the nobles you have to watch out for. It is always the second group who is against the leaders and the rulers. So they use, they mobilize the people on their behalf. In fact, there are commentators today, it's not a majority opinion, who believe that most of the restiveness in the U.S., the most of the criticism of the U.S. is from those secondary elites. There are two elites in the country as described by one by some people. There is the merchant elite, which is business, and the cultural elite, or the Brahmins, as the liberals. The merchant elite is largely centered in the Midwest, the coastal elites on either coast. And it's those coastal elites who, who are losing the competitive fight among the elites that may be one of the engines. So they're the ones that control the media. They're the ones that control the entertainment industry. They're the ones that control the magazines and the press and, and all of that. There's a case to be made that this is a this is a contest among elites, and the people, both liberal and conservative masses, are simply being mobilized by those elites to do their work, to be the engine and the energy behind them trying to get ahead or or to try and defend themselves. Do you see the cultural elites, and I'm thinking there of the sports people? Oh yeah. To some extent, they're another elite that are beholden on the the business elites for them to make their money and have and have their platforms. But they have political positions just like everybody else does. I mean, and it's hard to you know put people into ironclad categories, as you well know. But by and large, sure. But they're celebrity, and in Los Angeles, in the entertainment industry and the and the mainstream media, mostly side with this cultural elite. And the, the business folks and the white supremacists and the disenfranchised white working men are mostly aligned with the business elites. And again, I keep coming back to it. I hate to lead on this note, but I don't see it getting better. I don't think Biden's going to fix it. I think he's going to ameliorate it, mitigate it. I hope. I certainly hope so if he wins. If Trump wins, then... Um, Ironically, I mean, and, and there was during a, there was during a time, well, there are two things. There was during a time in the 1960s where there were a lot of black power nationalists who wanted the oppression to increase as a way of demonstrating how racist and how unequal the society was. So they would, did not want to try it. They say if you, and in fact, Clarence Thomas, a judge on the Supreme Court of the United States, has that exact same belief. He says, all this liberal stuff is just papering over mm. the fundamental decisions of society. So he's not interested in making it any better. He's interested in it coming apart. So ultimately, it's if the elites are so delegitimized, yes. that change has to happen. Or that, that large portions of the population switch to the allegiance of one elite versus the other. I say I wish the white middle to lower class, which is primarily supporting the current administration, would be the ones to switch. Is there any time when the middle to upper middle class, the more coastal people, could switch? I can't imagine. I don't know. That's my own group, so I have a hard time believing that I would ever switch. 
But uh, but they they as I say, they're not blameless either. They have not defended the people of this country. Uh, I haven't seen them go to the trenches where the, where I think those who were attacking the democracy and those who were attacking the government, they've been in the trenches for a long time and whittling away, whittling away. And now they've got the hammer and they're crashing this and crashing that. So uh, I think ultimately a cycle ends in an explosion. It doesn't end in a whimper. It ends when when expectations are are so so dashed that people say, this is unfair, this shouldn't happen, I, I'm not going to do this anymore, and I'm going to go do whatever. So we may be in some, for some more conflict before, before we can see another society emerge on the other side. I have visions of that society. In fact, my phrase for that society, and this is a 20, 30-year vision maybe, is that the time in those days, and they look back on our time, and not only will they curse us for ruining the planet, which we're undoubtedly going to do, but they will say, whew, I'm glad I don't have to live like that anymore. That kind of hyper-competitive, stressful life, realizing that there's a lot of value, but also realizing the price you pay in this. And as it gets worse, they'll see it even more so. So we could have a society that rediscovers not communism, certainly not a totalitarian form, but the values of community, the values of being with others, and giving up some goddamn GDP to achieve that. I mean, if we finally get to some kind of triple bottom line economics, some kind of belief that money and wealth is not the only measure of society, that capital is not the god of society, is not the only good. But before that to happen, that idea is already around. I mean, I believe it. <laughs> you believe it probably. A lot of our colleagues believe it. A lot of our friends and a lot of parts of the world believe it. But putting it into effect means that we first have to, I think, tear down something, which I hate to say because I'm a not instructive person. I hate conflict. But I can't imagine a way out of this that doesn't involve some degrees of conflict. Okay. Thanks, Peter, for the conversation. I have... Uh... I wanted to have it because I wanted to stop listening to my thoughts and listen to <laughs> someone else's. Well, I, I, hope, I hope I didn't feed you a, a such an unpleasant sandwich that it's not good enough for your program because I have a great respect for the work that you've done all through your whole, your whole life and, and this particular venture. So post it if you want, post parts of it if you want. But I, I try to be honest and I try to see all sides. So we'll see. Thanks, Peter. Thanks very much. All right. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.